When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, welcoming Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University, to The Bigger Picture. Uh, Tim, where are we going to begin today? Um, I think we've got to start with the, uh, the, um, the Guardian, a piece by Andrew Rawnsley, um, three years after Brexit, where is the new golden age that they promised us? And, and I think this is a, 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 an interesting question. I think we've got to remember that the vote, of course, on Brexit was all the way back in 2016. It will not be that long before um, we're in 2026 and that the vote will be will have been a decade ago. But, but, but the, the sort of the settlement, as it was with Brexit, mm. that, that came about in 2020 certainly is three years ago. And I have to say, I don't think it's gone as anyone could have imagined. The first thing to say is that all those stories that were promoted by the Remainers, that the shops would be empty and that there'd be uh, chaos and the trading system would break down, well, that didn't transpire. Um, um, If there were the odd gap in the shelf of a supermarket, um, there was usually a substitute. You know, if you couldn't have couscous, you could still have rice. Um, But I think some of the real horror stories never came about. The second thing I will say is that um, for various reasons since since the Brexit vote, I don't think the European Union has, has covered itself particularly in glory. It is not exactly... Uh, the booming or thriving uh, continental trading block that many Remainers uh, assumed it was going to be. Huge rates of particularly youth unemployment in Southern Europe, um, parlously low rates of growth, lots of tensions and disagreements right across the continent. Um, you know, um, so so that's on that side. But I have to say, if you're a Brexiteer, and you really believed um, that uh, potential in Britain was going to be unleashed, um, that there was going to be a lot more money for the NHS, and the NHS was uh, now full of money from that would have otherwise gone to the European Union, that somehow the NHS was going to be um, really uh, uh, on top of its game, um, and that British industry, goods and services, were going to be seeing the benefit of Brexit and that we that our economy was going to be thriving. Well, I don't think that has really happened. In fact, I thought one of the most shocking things was that uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg said recently when he was asked about Brexit and how it was going, instead of, instead of talking about all the short-term gains that the Brexiteers had previously detailed, um, he talked more in terms of, well, um, I'm sure Brexit will be a benefit and when we have hindsight, 
in 50 years time and that was the time horizon he chose 50 years mm-hmm. uh, that, that we'd be able to look back and see some benefits so um i i i think that most voters uh have been left in a sort of a no man's land of blamange i don't think many people find the modern european union that that attractive most people probably don't want to go back to it of course a lot of other things have happened the war in ukraine the cost of living crisis covid but nor do i feel that many brexiteers feel that the brexit has been what they thought they were being sold that it would be um rather zippy sort of launch pad for growth and and the sunny uplands has anything actually been done that we can point to to say this has been done by government because we're no longer in the European Union? I, I just get the impression that they don't seem to know what to do or whether they should do something, whether it's because they'll annoy the other side and they want to be fair. I don't know. But I, I can't really see what has been done apart from leaving. Exactly. And we still have the conundrum around uh, trade in Northern Ireland. We've had very warm words in recent money from the Minister of State in Northern Ireland, Steve Baker, who was, of course, one of the 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 the, the dry or arid uh, Brexiteers. When he said that he thought that mistakes had been made on both sides, and the tea shock, uh, the Irish Prime Minister uh, reciprocated by saying that he thought that, with hindsight, um, the European Union had not struck a particularly good deal or had been as amenable to Brexit. Uh, and the will of the British public as perhaps uh, the EU and certainly the Republic of Ireland could have been. So there are some more words. Um, there is a bill, of course, going through the House of Commons um, that will potentially um, lay to rest um, many, many hundreds, if not thousands, of laws and regulations that were traditionally associated with the European Union. But one can't help feel that 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 that, that could lead um to not only all manner of unintended consequences but i'm not sure that the british public certainly in the run-up to the next election are going to see any palpable improvement i mean you know how will these in effect these sunset clauses if you want to call them that how are they really going to improve the nhs policing education lower taxes you know, where's the growth coming from? We have a, a major um, crisis on this planet um, in terms of not being able to access semiconductors. We've learned in recent hours that the British car industry uh, has been at its lowest level of production since the 1960s. And that's because they simply can't get the yes. semiconductors to put in the cars. You know, how How is Brexit now and the few legislative changes that the government are considering, how is this going to be turned around? Yes, it's not as if we haven't yet seen the result of whatever's been done. Nothing has been done yet, which is just exactly. quite extraordinary. And if, if, as Ronzi points out in his piece, of course, now when the polling is showing that people who voted are rather sorry that they did so, because they can't see yeah. an advantage of having done it. Because, yeah. uh, for many people, you know, travelling to the EU is now more of a pain than it used to be, except you can get duty-free, of course. Um and, you know, I saw a piece this morning saying this summer is going to be a nightmare for those people travelling to the continent. Yeah. So, uh, you know, where are the sunny uplands? It seems to me um, that 
in and of its own terms, what was promised has not been delivered. Um, and that Brexit so far has been a bit of a bit of a pup. Um, and, and the other, the weirdest thing of all um, is you don't really hear Brexiteers now talking about the coming benefits of Brexit. And mind you, you don't hear many you don't hear many politicians on the continent um, that excited about the coming benefits of remaining in the European Union. Mm. But but it, it seems to me that um, that whereas you know decades ago there was a sort of sense of there was a spirit of utopianism in politics, certainly on the left, of a new society of, mm. of building a better world. Um, and then with Thatcherism, you had its own right wing version of the free market and 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 trade and growth and the big bang in the city and and everyone driving a golf GTI in a better life. It seems to me that most of our politicians no longer are even remotely excited by their own visions and their own propaganda. And so most of them um, have dialed down their mm. promises. Um, and maybe in the dialing down, it's one of the reasons why we find it so difficult to engage with them, to find anything exciting or of interest, because they all sound the same. Yeah. And I don't think that's where we expected to be um, three or four years ago when we were heading into Brexit. Depressing, isn't it, Tim? Let's take a quick break and we'll change topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Uh, Tim, what's our second subject going to be? Well, our second subject is going to be housing, a really interesting piece in um, on a, a financial website called This Is Money by Simon Lambert. And it's called What Happened to House Prices Over the Past 174 Years? And Why Did They Once Spend 70 Years uh, getting cheaper. Um, what he points out is that from the mid 1840s right through to um, really through the Edwardian period, just after the First World War, the average house price uh, compared to earnings went down. But then the really big picture of house prices in the last hundred years is that they've risen. They haven't always risen been a bit of a bumpy ride but certainly there was a, a house uh, building boom um in the 1930s huge swathes of our suburban areas were built in the 1930s that was partly britain's response to the economic downturn that came from the wall street crash of 1929 um then in the 50s of course there was an absolute boom uh in in housing not just public but also private. Um, but then really from 1950 and, 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 and for a long time, um, we haven't, well, 
for, certainly from the 1970s onwards, I should say. We haven't really built that much. And we've had the green belts in place since just after the Second World War, which has restricted those areas where supply can meet demand. But the really big picture is that um, is that houses uh, have indeed become a lot more expensive. What's un- what I didn't realise until I looked at the data was that um, that relative to earnings, house prices were even higher in the early and mid-Victorian period than they are now. Um, some of the peaks we've seen in recent years has been six or eight times earnings. Uh, but back then, in the mid-Victorian period, it was 10 or 12 times earnings. So but, some but, real surprises. Yes. Interesting. Now, of course, when you when you look at the, the article, because that's pointing out that relatively few people actually did have houses. Most people were, were renting. Houses were also much bigger then. Over the years, houses got smaller. I mean, when when you when you look at the the lowest point of the graph of house prices compared to earnings, it's almost the moment that the big house building began, and you know, terraced houses came into being. Is 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 when it's turning. Absolutely, um, but it's a fascinating perspective, mm. isn't it? The gradual transition away of a population away from um, rented. You know, um, uh, I mean, private renters uh, were probably three quarters of the population Mm. at the end of the First World War, and only about a quarter of people were owner-occupiers, whereas today uh, that's completely reversed and probably around 70% or 65% are owner-occupiers. What's interesting is the Labour Party um, want want to get that back up, they say, to 70%. Um, of owner-occupiers. And the only way it seems to me that they're going to be able to do that, or any government's going to be able to do that, um, is to enable, encourage, incentivize lots of new supply. We need to build more. And as you say, one of the other trends that is most peculiar is this ongoing trend uh, from reasonably-sized properties, rather luxurious properties, actually, Mm. from an awful lot of people, Maybe not in terms of facilities, but in terms of scale and size. Certainly, there, there were there were larger rooms to an increasingly sort of house building exercise, which is really built on little rooms, little little boxes in a way. Yes, um, little boxes wow. with little thought given to the infrastructure designed to support the people who move into them as well. Which I think you know the Victorians, the Edwardians were rather better at that. Absolutely, absolutely, but. What, you know, I think the, the the big elephant in the room here for any government that wants to grow private ocu- uh, owner-occupier um, is the planning laws and issues like the green belt. Uh, because a lot of people who own property in a market where supply is restricted, of course, benefit from the inflated prices. Yes. and electorally um i think you only have to talk to any member of parliament and they will tell you that the public has split on this the public will say on the one hand yes young people should be going onto the ladder we need to build more houses so they can get a chance so we can bring prices down but when you actually say well would you like these new houses to be built in your area and would you accept lower property prices then they balk at the idea and they vote against it. It's, it's so, a very odd thing because because property prices tend to be all right. Different areas have different 
rises in property prices or, or falls, but it's not real wealth because if you're in one home, you're going to move to another home. And so if prices are lower, well, the cost of the next home is going to be lower as well. It's a very odd thing. But I do remember my parents, you know, I was quite young, saying that when they bought their first house, it was a real toss-up between buying or renting because at that stage, there was never any thought that you would make capital gain out of buying a house. Indeed. But I wonder how, and, and this I don't know what the research says, I wonder what the green belt and the and the planning restrictions, particularly after the Second World War, I wonder how that has distorted and changed the market, not just economically, but also in terms of these electoral and voter conundrums. Yes. Um, and, and most importantly, I wonder where on earth it's all going to head, yes. because it is so unfortunate for so many young people in their 20s, 30s, and even older, not to be able to form capital, get a deposit, and get on that mm. ladder. That yes. wasn't the case for you and I, Simon, and for our generation. No, I, know. I feel quite guilty about it. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. Though, though it you know, it isn't our, it isn't necessarily our fault. In fact, the the piece is quite extraordinary. I mean, it's written by Simon Lambert. You say this is money, Simon Lambert, and the this is money team friends with Share Radio. We have a podcast of theirs every uh, week. But at the end, he quotes this Bank of England paper looking at the past four decades of house price inflation, and th- the extraordinary who would have thought it conclusion is that the declining cost of borrowing had played a major part in long term property inflation. I can't believe the Bank of England needs to actually produce a paper in order to actually know that that's been one result of keeping interest rates on the floor. I mean, I, just extraordinary. I know. It, 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 the, the odd thing about that is just how, in a so-called capitalist society, everyone's lost focus of the fact that you, to be in a capitalist society, you have to form capital. And savings are a key part of it. And savers need to be rewarded through the the, the 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 value of you know the price of money in informing it if 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 people try to save money but that's been constantly undermined with low interest rates and rampant inflation then that is really not what capitalism is about so yeah god bless the bank of england for their mysterious papers um, yes. um I, if i was marking their homework i uh, i think i would have some some things to say Simon. Yes, we, yes. There's an an AI bot that could have written a much more interesting paper than than that. We are going to move on, though, Tim. So, where should we turn now? So, um, we are now and have been for a few months, well into uh, the hundredth year of the BBC, and um, quite a lot has been written about the BBC in recent years. There was one book I read. Uh, by a, a Marxist who, if you believed it, um, uh, argued that the BBC were at the heart of a wicked capitalist conspiracy to oppress and misinform. Um, a more rounded, more moderate, and I think more balanced book is by uh, Robert Sita. Uh, uh, it's called Broadcasting Britain, 100 Years of the BBC. I, and I confess, I'm I'm quite... I, I quite admire the BBC. Um, I, I think the greatest force in politics, in electoral politics, is probably irritation. And on the basis that <laughs> most, on the basis that most people don't vote for 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 a political party on the basis that they're enamoured by them or they trust them or they even like them, people usually vote for a side because they're irritated 
by the others, okay? And on the basis of that, uh, I quite enjoy listening to everyone's irritation with the BBC. Most of the people on the right argue that the BBC are full of lefties, it's all woke now, um, um, and that this is a form of sort of relativistic socialism through the back door. Uh, everyone on the left believe uh, that the BBC um, putting on national events, be it the National Festival of Remembrance or Trooping the Colour or the forthcoming coronation um, or endlessly ending all news broadcasts, usually with what happened on the FTSE index today, um, that this hat somehow denotes that the BBC is a wickedly capitalist uh, operation. It's very much in with the City of London, it's in with uh, neoliberalism, and even worse, um, it shows immense deference and respect for an unelected leadership in the form of royalty. Now, of course, the truth is, is that the BBC is a broadcaster, um, uh, it's a public service broadcaster in an increasingly competitive world, and it doesn't just broadcast to the world, um, its core business is broadcasting to 67 million very strong-minded people, most of whom invariably are rather quarrelsome, constantly irritated and disagree with each other. And I think that, to be fair, the BBC do a remarkable job at providing not just um, trust. I think they do genuinely believe in truth. I think it's impossible to always get truth right, but they believe in it and they self-identify as being truthful, I think that's very, very important. But secondly, I think that the BBC spirit um, is to try and keep the tanks of most political parties and most governments off their lawn. And I think for 100 years, they've been quite successful in that. I think thirdly, they do a remarkable job um, at, um, at, dare I say, it, diversity and inclusion. Mm. You know, there are all kinds of services that the BBC do, for example, the BBC World Service in various languages, BBC Monitoring, which is a distinct BBC service, provides astonishingly high-grade uh, intelligence information from what other nations and, and many adversaries and competitors are broadcasting uh, in their foreign languages, and BBC Broadcasting served us very well um, during parts of the Second World War and the Cold War, and no, no doubt continue to do so. Then you have all the local radio, the county radio stations that add to that sense of pride locally. Um, and I could go on. And then, then you have, you know, the, the sort of more niche on television, you know, BBC Three, BBC Four, mm -hmm. and it goes on. And what I think is brilliant about that is that, yes, it competes with commercial channels. It competes with the Netflix and all the rest of it. But the BBC in the modern world has found a very good way of working with lots of independent producers and independent providers. So most of its content now uh, is not generated from within the BBC in its old nationalised form. It is increasingly generated commercially by different independent operations. I have no idea how the BBC will be funded in the future, and I remain open-minded to that. But in its first 100 years, its commitment to truth its commitment to Britain, its commitment to democracy, its general disdain for most politicians, um, uh, I think, as any organ as any human run organization can go, I think it has done pretty well, and it certainly gets a nine out of ten from me. 
probably merits a gold star. Tim, thank you. That's Tim Evans. Tim is Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University. Tim, I hope we'll be back with me in a fortnight's time. That's it for this edition of The Bigger Picture. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.